Here we go, season seven. All aboard. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more, there is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we are calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. It is Wednesday, September 23rd, 2020. This is Messiah Matters number 314. Rob got rid of his books, so I got rid of him. My name is Caleb Hag. I'm just kidding. Rob's on vacation, so I welcome my father, Tim Hag, to the show in his place. Thanks for joining me, Dad. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, I don't know why, but my audio is super loud, so I'm going to turn this down. So I think we surprised people in the uh, in the chat room on that one. Okay. Okay. Well, do I need uh, to turn mine down? No, you're good. I got you over here. Okay. We got a lot going on today. We got a lot to talk about. People are already excited about the title in the, uh, in the chat room, apostolic secession. That's something that we've never talked about on this uh, show. We've also never talked about, uh, the idea of modern day apostles. And that's something else that we'll talk about on this show today. So if you don't know who my father is, my father, Tim Haig, is the president and CEO of Torah Resource and Torah Resource Institute. He is a teacher at Torah Resource Institute as well. He is currently teaching through Hebrew, Hebrew syntax, um, how we got our Bible. What other classes do you have right now, Dad? I have uh, how we got our Bible as well as um, syntax, Hebrew, and Messiah in the Tanakh. And Messiah in the Tanakh. So uh, classes are closed for the fall quarter, or for, yeah, for the fall quarter right now, but you will be able to sign up for the winter quarter in just a, about a week or so. Also, another milestone right now is that we have our uh, fall producer credit up. So if you are a regular producer, or if you're not, if you've never been a producer, then uh, now's the time. Go and do it. For now, we're going to put our summer uh, producers up. Next week, we will have our fall producers we have quite the uh the mug for people um it's uh it's a playoff of well i won't ruin it go check out our new producer credit mug uh i think it's hilarious some people will probably be offended but we don't really care okay um 
Also, I want to make sure that everybody knows you can be part of this conversation. As soon as my uh, producer's credits stop rolling, I will roll those. Um, actually, let's just do it at top. Let's do it at top. Um, we have 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. That's our call-in number. You are not going to talk to us. You will simply talk to an answering machine. And uh, that means you can say whatever you want. You can yell at us. You can love us. You can hate us. You can do whatever you want. And uh, we listen to all of those messages. Also, you can write us email, chag at torresource.com. Chag at torresource.com. If you'd like to find a plethora of my father's literature and or audio and video lectures, you can do so on torresource.com. That is what this show is produced by. Torresource.com is a place where you can find all sorts of wonderful literature and or video and audio. You can also find free resources like uh, articles and also, I mean, all sorts of stuff including uh, blessing and prayer booklets for the fall festivals, which we are currently in. So I would, uh, I would encourage you to go there. Okay, let's get started. Oh, wait, I forgot the most important thing. If you haven't done it already, I need you to go stop what you're doing right now. Subscribe to this YouTube channel if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening to it on iTunes, please subscribe to it and or like this episode. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's get to more important things. Um, we're going to start, and the reason we're going to start with this is because about two weeks ago, we talked, uh, Rob and I talked about Matthew 23 and what the seed of Moses was and also um, what it meant to, what that whole passage meant. Um, and the passage in question is, 20, is Matthew 23, 2 through 3. I'll read it real quick. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Um, okay, so Matt called in to the, uh, to the comment line, and he left a wonderful message. But basically, I'm going to pare down his message. Because we've talked about Matthew 23, but basically what he asked is, is this implying that Yeshua is indeed a Pharisee? In other words, he says, do what the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes have seated themselves in the seat of Moses. Well, he doesn't say like the Sakari or the Qumranites or, you know, the Essenes or anything like that. He says scribes and the Pharisees. So the basic question is, does Matthew 23 and other passages, the fact that the Pharisees are always kind of around Yeshua, uh, does that prove or suggest rather that Yeshua is a Pharisee? Dad, go. Well, obviously the context here uh, and the, the ongoing context of Matthew 23, he makes it very clear that the Pharisees, they, they do things that they shouldn't do. They have a reputation for things that no one who is a follower of Yeshua should seek to continue. Now, were there those who became followers of Yeshua who were uh, Pharisees? Yes, but they had to give up the idea of being, that their being a Pharisee was at the top of their, the order of their uh, beliefs and of their actions, and they had to transfer that. They had to, they, they had to say, no, I will become a disciple of Yeshua. So a disciple of Yeshua became their identity, because he says, that be, with regard to the Pharisees, they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 4 of 23 of Matthew, they tie up heavy burdens, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with such, uh, with as much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their their tefillin uh, and lengthen the tassels of their garments, etc., etc. They love the places of prominence and honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. So the point is that he goes down and gives a whole litany of uh, characteristics of Pharisees that are contrary to the gospel hmm. and contrary to the um, the very heart of the gospel, which is that when we confess our sins, when we admit we have no ability to please God with our own strength and with our own fallen nature, and the only thing we can do is plead for his mercies, which he promises to give us as we accept his son Yeshua as the as the burden bearer of sin for us. Hmm. So he could not have said that he was, you know, now, uh, you know, uh, Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. What does that mean? It means that as far as the Pharisees were concerned, he was at the top of the heap. But that's at the point when he was uh, persecuting believers in Yeshua. And he certainly would not have retained that. So the idea, if, if you look at the whole context, it's quite clear. In fact, it's even, you know, he goes so far as to say, if I can just go a little further, he says that these Pharisees love the place of honor. I'm at uh, Matthew 23, 6, at banquets in the chief seats in the synagogues and respectfully and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Then he goes on to say, but do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Now, the idea of rabbi and father, we know from the earliest uh, rabbinic literature, especially as noted in the apostolic scriptures, that they loved to be called teacher or even master or father. So this is why he says, don't do that. Don't be connected with the traditions of the rabbi of the Pharisees, as though that is what puts you in right standing before God. Okay, you you got students of yours in the chat room who are going to now push back, which is great. Joshua responds and says, "But Paul uses the present tense in Acts. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, not I was a Pharisee okay. of Pharisees." Okay, okay, but that just simply means that he was known at that present time as a Pharisee of Pharisees. It didn't mean he continued to practice Pharisaism. In fact, he spoke against it in his epistles. Maybe not by name, but certainly by what he was talking about being humble and being submitted to Yeshua, whom the Pharisees hated as a, as a group. Well, I mean, we could say that we could say the same thing about Ephesians and Galatians, right? I mean, Paul yeah. Paul pushes directly not only against the Pharisees, but specifically against what we can tell every form of Judaism of the time that right. the Gentiles are included in the covenant blessings, which is right. like he should have been considered anathema. So, yeah. but at the same time, let me let me play devil's advocate for a few moments here. We can't just say across the board that all all uh, acts of uh, Pharisaism were were. I mean. Paul still held to a lot of his uh, upbringing and his teaching, right? I mean, he was sure. taught by a, a prominent Pharisee who was on the on the council. Sure. And uh, so it's not like they just turned around and, and uh, renounced everything, correct? Correct. Well, what I'm saying is this. Even though, obviously, the Pharisees had certain things that were good, they 
they wanted the, the essentially they used the foundation of the Torah, even though they added to it. We see this in, I know this is a very late uh, aspect, but Perkei Avot, the very opening Perkei Avot, what does it say? Um, do I have that here somewhere? <laughs> anyway, it says, I'm paraphrasing, the Torah was given to Moses, Moses handed on to the uh, to the prophets, the prophets gave it to the men of the great assembly, etc., etc. And so they basically said the, great, the men of the great assembly were the ones that put together the Mishnah. Okay, is their idea. So they're saying that the Mishnah has value equal with the Torah. Well, that's contrary to what Paul was saying. So were there things that in, in the Pharisaism that were, you know, basic truths? Sure, of course. Not everything the Pharisees taught was falsehood. But don't you think, okay, I, 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 I understand where you're coming from, but don't you think that uh, uh, one of the interesting aspects of the first century quote-unquote church, if we can, if we can use that term, is that ju- that people from all walks of Judaism seem to convert or come to a following of the Messiah. So, for instance, in, in Acts 15, it says, and there were men that came down from Judea who were Pharisees, right? Right. right. And so they, they're still identi- identifying as Pharisees. It seems as though Paul still identifies as a Pharisee. So is it really wrong to say that Paul might identify uh, theologically with much of what the Pharisees say and therefore might even see himself as a Pharisee, but the ultimate has been placed above that, which is Christ. Right. Okay, I don't have any problem with that. Let me use an analogy. It would be like if we take in our day, we have two terms which are very broad, conservatives and liberals, okay? When we're talking in terms of theology, when we think of of liberal theology, we think of those who are discounting the inspiration of the scriptures, maybe not all of them, but some of them would. Um, but they're they're leaning in that direction. When we say conservative, we're saying those who say no, what we have in the 66 books is the word of God and affirming inspiration and so forth and so on. Okay. So if if I say I'm a conservative, that doesn't mean that I agree with every conservative, because there are conservatives that certainly have errant doctrines. Um, and doesn't mean that I'm against every liberal because there are liberals who have some of their doctrines right on the money. So when we're using broad terms, and I think Pharisee, in fact, you know that in the uh, rabbinic literature, they say that there were five different kinds of Pharisees. And they list the different, the different kind of schools within the broad scope of Pharisaism. So when I read the question, does this mean that Paul uh, was, uh, or that Yeshua was a Pharisee? Well, we never see him ever aligning entirely with the Pharisees, but do we, and we never see him aligning uh, in, in completion with the Sadducees, obviously, because they didn't believe in the resurrection and, and et cetera, et cetera. They didn't believe in angels and so forth from everything that we can tell. So what I'm saying is that the final and definite and most prominent aspect of Paul was not that he was a Pharisee. He wouldn't have told it. He'd just gone around and tell everybody, see, I'm a Pharisee. He, what did he tell people? He was a follower of Yeshua. He was an apostle of Yeshua. That was his primary identification. So when he says there in Acts, I'm a Pharisee, the Pharisees, uh, he's, he's saying, if you look at my, at the history of my halacha or how I uh, follow Torah, you will see that I was very much aligned with those who wanted to follow Torah as Moses gave it. And uh, to, to even go beyond that to the nth degree. So he's saying, you can't say that I'm against Torah, as some might have uh, said he was. 
We have a, a, another interesting comment from Joshua uh, in the chat room. He says, wouldn't you agree that Jesus agreed with the Pharisees more than other Judaisms? I want to take the first stab at this. I think that this is a difficult question to answer. And the reason why is because although we do know probably the most about the Pharisees and or possibly the Sadducees in that they denied the resurrection, that's the main caveat that is given about the Sadducees. We don't really know a whole lot about other groups within the first century Judaisms of the time. I mean, we know Qumran, obviously, because we have the community rule and uh, other Qumran writings. However, uh, I think that there were a lot more flavors, if you will, of of Judaism and or theology within the first century. So to just say that uh, he agreed most with the Pharisees only takes into account what we know of the present day, what we know of the Judaisms of the time then. Would you agree with that or do you have a different uh a view on that. No, I, I would agree. Yeah. Well, generally, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, what about John's disciples fasting twice t- uh, the week just as of the Pharisees? Yeah. So th- this, I think, uh, Gary's comment, I think, also plays into a little bit about what I'm talking about. What sect was the followers of John? Were they Pharisees? John the Baptist, that is. Were they Pharisees? Were they something else? He seems to push against the Pharisees, yet at the same time, he seems to have some uh, theology that aligns closely with them. Um, I, I think that, you know, and there's been people who have tried to map, E.P. Sanders and others have tried to map what Judaisms uh, were in the first century. Mm-hmm. And uh, every single time they have a very hard time doing it. You know, what exactly did the Sakari believe? You know, what exactly did the Zealots believe? Uh, we know very little, even the Sadducees, what exactly did the Sadducees believe and were the Sadducees a theological group or were they more a dynastic group or a philosophical group? I mean, even that we don't know. Or political. Or political, right. Um, So, okay. Well, there's one one, uh, illustration that we could use and people may not like this illustration, but I'm going to use it at any rate. Um, Are there, I mean, let's, let's just name three, okay? Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, okay? Are the things that the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Anglicans believe, which I fully affirm as well? Yes. Even though some of them, not all of them, but some of them would say that the Torah has been abolished. They would say that when Yeshua died and rose again, he did away with the law. That would be their terminology. Well, I totally disagree with that, and I think it has major, major problems. But it doesn't mean that I don't agree with some of the fundamentals of the resurrection of Yeshua and so forth and so on. Right. Okay. So, you know, for Paul to say I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he's saying when when it comes to Pharisaism, I was at the top of the heap. You can't say his point there in Acts is that you can't say that now I'm a follower of Yeshua, that I am doing away with the Torah. Because what he was saying was, now I need to differentiate between those parts of the Pharisaic law that are man-based as over against those which God gave. So he's moving more and more to saying the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, become the foundation and become the touchstone. You know what a touchstone is? Right. It's what they used to use to make sure that something was gold. They'd you know rub it against it and see you know so forth and so on. Okay. So it's the touchstone of what comes afterwards. Any prophet that disagreed with anything t- Paul, uh, uh, the Torah said, Moses said, was considered to be a false prophet. Okay? So then the, the, the prophetic literature in, that becomes a standard on the basis of 
the Torah. Now you take the Psalms, you take you take the uh, late prophets and so forth and so on, the writings. If they disagree with something that the prophets said, the, <laughs> then they're not to be received. And that continues on then in the apostolic scriptures. Let's go back for a second to Paul, because it's interesting that he says in, in I, I've just been in... Um, in Acts 20, and Acts 20 verses 1 and 2 is just kind of a very short timeline from Luke mm-hmm. on on Paul being in Macedonia and then going down to uh, Corinth, uh, Corinth. But if you read 2 Corinthians, we realize that actually Paul, this is a huge missing point for Luke, that Paul actually writes 2 Corinthians during that time, and then he goes down and writes Romans during that time as well. But in 2 Corinthians, he said, you know, these people come in to Corinth and he, he basically says, I don't, you know, Paul says, look, these guys come in with all these credentials. I don't need credentials. You're my credentials, right? But then later on in his letters, he says things like, you know, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And, a Jew, you know, so he it's almost like he has credentials, but he doesn't like, it's almost like, look, I got the plaque on the wall, but I don't even need that because right. I have, I have, you know, things that are even better than, than the plaque on the wall. So right. Um, yeah, those kind of credentials are interesting. Okay, so we have uh, just the chat room has now blown up, uh, which is great. <laughs> okay, uh, let's keep going. We're going to move on from this question. Thank you, Matt. I know that he, Matt just entered the chat room and said, is this my question? So, yeah, you're going to have to go back and listen to it, Matt. That's okay. Um, Pierce writes in, and this was, I think, from last uh, from last week. And this is a great question for my father because my father is currently teaching how we got our Bible. He's taught how we got our Bible maybe 11 times now. Um, I've done uh, a, a, a teaching on uh, our how we got our modern Bible or, or uh, the formation of our modern Bible. Um, so Pierce writes in and he says, during minute 45, this is of last week's show, you argue that the canon is closed. I agree with the standard Christian canon, but why are you so convinced of a closed canon? Are there, so that's the end of the question. Um, there, there's a lot of directions that we could go with this. I'm going to let you start and see which direction you go. Well, first of all, the uh, leading scholarship in terms of conservative leading scholarship um, I- indicates that uh, you had the the canon of the Tanakh closed as early as the third century BCE, right? Uh, and you y- you have clear evidence of that in terms of what people were saying. And even the fact that they they had we have a very early reference to the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which which was the general way of uh, describing the the so-called Old Testament or the Tanakh. Tanakh, of course, means Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, which means the the law, the Moses, the first book, first five books, the Pentateuch, and then the prophets, and then the rest are grouped under writings. So. Okay, you have a cannon. What is a cannon? A cannon is like a yardstick, like a ruler. Okay, now that means that anything that is written after that that is going to be received as scripture has to agree in in general theology and even in specifics with what has already been written. Because it's like if you're uh, if you're building something and you have a tape measure, and all of a sudden somebody comes along with a different tape measure that the, the the inches are longer or something, you can't use that because you're not going to be able to build the thing and build it correctly if it's already founded upon a different measurement. You understand my analogy? 
I mean, if you're going to build a box and you start out and build the bottom of it with the conventional uh, inch and you know, 12 inches to a foot and so forth and so on. And then someone comes along with a ruler that says, no, no, there's 14 inches to the foot. You can't use that and continue to build that same box. It's not going to work. So what I'm saying is, is that when, when you come to the apostles, they had to agree with what the Torah said. Now, the second thing is, is that you had eyewitnesses and you're going to say, well, Paul wasn't an eyewitness of Yeshua. Okay, yes, he was, but not as a believer. Okay, but he did, he did, he did see, he did know that Yeshua lived, and he, he, you know, was there. He was, he was persecuting the followers of Yeshua. Okay, so, but you had eyewitnesses, and what were the eyewitnesses of? They were eyewitnesses of the fact that he was a man living amongst Israel that he was proclaimed by many to be the Messiah. As a result, he was put upon an execution stake, and people saw this with their eyes. They were there. And then he was put into a tomb, and three days later, on the third day, he rose again, and over 500 witnessed his living after he had been put in the tomb, and they wrote, and some of them wrote about it. Okay, so that means the eyewitnesses, that is, those who became apostles. Now, was Paul an apostle? Yes, he was. Uh, did he have a high eyewitness of Yeshua? He was given a specific eyewitness, and he was received even by those who had previously been eyewitnesses. He was received and given the right hand of fellowship by those who were the, the very disciples of Yeshua who walked with him and saw uh, his miracles and heard his uh message and saw and saw his life okay saw his death and his resurrection and so now they become they become the exemplar they become the canon against which all others must be uh based okay and you say well couldn't there be someone else now who also uh has that ability to write something additionally and it and it fits with everything that's been written in the apostolic scriptures as well as in the tanakh no, the idea simply is this, that these, that everyone who is uh, one of the authors of the apostolic scriptures were either direct eyewitnesses of Yeshua or were with those, lived with those, and heard their testimony face-to-face, -face, not something that someone transmitted, but face-to-face -face with those who had known Yeshua and walked with him, seen his death, and seen and were witnesses of his resurrection. Yeah, the, the formation of the canon, especially the apostolic canon, and I assume that that's really where the, uh, you know, the question is why why would people be able to build upon the Old Testament canon or the Tanakh and not build on the New Testament or the apostolic canon? Ultimately, you don't have any, there, there's no group of, of Israel or group of uh, Jews or anyone who says, okay, now the Old Testament is closed. It seems to be agreed upon since you have, uh, since you have people refer to it as my father has already mentioned the law and the prophets. However, when we get into the eyewitnesses of Yeshua and the and what has gone on in terms of the transmission of his life, his death, his resurrection, all those kind of things, you have the the church quote unquote church, the body of believers who are now trying to figure out what books 
are valid and what books are not. You have people dying for certain books and not willing to die for others. You also have communities of, of believers, multiple, not just one, multiple, multiple, multiple communities of believers accepting certain books but rejecting others. And you have lists of these books all the way up until the Council, the council of Cal- Chalcedon in, what was it, 391, I think it was. And they finally say, and this isn't the only council, there's actually three councils that basically say, okay, um, we're going to, or, you know, the, count, the, the canon is now closed. I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's not 391, it's 397. Yeah. The, the final council of, of uh, the final and third council of, of Carthage, I said, I'm sorry, Carthage is what I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, the, the final, the third and final uh, council of Carthage in uh, 397 was the uh, kind of the nail in the coffin. It was the, it was the council that finally said the canon is closed. And they didn't say that because the council had decided it. They uh, said it because other councils had already said it and because the uh, community of believers, the ecclesia, had decided that there were too many errant teachings that were coming in, too many books that were being written, too many people trying to ascribe books to apostles that weren't actually written by the apostles and whatnot. And so they said the canon is closed. I think that this actually plays into multiple things. It plays into the idea that uh, the that Yeshua would build his ecclesia, and the ecclesia realized that the Holy Spirit had been done moving uh, to write the the canon, and that the sixty six book canon was the full inspired word of God, and that there were no more witnesses, as my father's always already said, eyewitnesses of the events that had taken place, and therefore the canon was closed. So okay, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Let me just add one thing here quickly. Uh, even before the councils of the uh, uh, second, well, third and fourth centuries. Um, you have something, for instance, like 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. And he goes on to say, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, where does the scripture say that the laborer is worthy of his wages? He's quoting from Luke there. Right. Luke 10.7 who was recording what Yeshua had taught. So already Paul is able to say, this is what the scriptures say. And he's not saying that of of other uh, uh, literature. He's not ascribing uh, the the value of scripture to that. So here we have a very early, you know, and you have the same thing of, uh, if I can just add this, in uh, Tacitus in his uh, uh, Roman Annals, which is dated to 115 to 117, he gives indication there that there was already a, uh, a, a, a compilation of scriptures that the followers of Yeshua held as having authority equal with the Torah. Right. So, yeah, I, yeah I, I, uh, Matt asks a question. By the way, the uh, people from uh, the Philippines say hello. Joel mm-hmm. and Alfred are, are uh, representing our brothers and sisters in the Philippines in the chat room. Okay, Matt in the chat room says, "What if they found the first letter that Paul wrote to the to Corinth?" I think you mean the second. Uh, second Corinthians is actually the third yeah. uh, letter to Corinth, not the second, but we call it Second Corinthians. Uh, I, I uh, this is a great question. Once again, I think that the the canon of Scripture has been decided and shown by the Holy Spirit to the body of believers, and therefore I don't think it can be added to. Thus, if we found the lost letter of 
you know, Second Corinthians by Paul, and and I always bring, I always make this, you know, this like thought. If it said, and I tell you that the Torah is not done away with, and that everyone should be keeping the law, you know, the Jew and Gentile alike, you know, and put the uh, the one law debate to rest, we still wouldn't be able to accept it as scripture. We could look at it and say this is this is Paul, and it's great, and we should study it, and maybe we should, you know, frame Paul's thought around the the uh, other letters that he wrote. But the fact is, is that it was not shown to be Scripture from the very beginning, which means it's not Scripture. The Holy Spirit has revealed the books of Scripture, the 66 books of Scripture, to the body of believers as his word. So it doesn't matter what else Paul wrote. What is inspired by the Holy Spirit is what's in our canon today. If Paul wrote other things, which he did and we know he did, even if we found them, they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit, because if they were, they'd be in our Bible today. That's the point. And I think I'd like to add to that. When you, when you honestly study the transmission of what we have today as the 66 books, I think the, the clear indication is, uh, well, the clear fact is that God in his sovereign providence and in his all-empowerful uh, will has maintained the scriptures for us. When right. you look at the Isaiah scroll, just as an example, the Isaiah scroll that was found in the Qumran scrolls, which is dated to the... To the um, early first or late second century BCE, okay? And then you compare it to Aleppo 986 um, right. of the Common Era or Letagradensis, which is 1008, and you compare it. I mean, you can look at Emmanuel Tobe's work on this, and it isn't that uh, I wouldn't consider Emmanuel Tobe to be uh, what we would call, you know, a, a super, super conservative kind of a guy, but he makes it very clear, and he shows you data after data after data, how clearly this text was copied and how few you know significant differences exist over a thousand year period you can't find that in any other human literature okay you just can't find it you can't if you look at plato and you see plato's in fact plato didn't want his things uh, written because he said when things are written you can't change them but at any rate uh, when you look at uh, the the copies of Plato over the years, you see significant differences. Right. And so the very fact that we have tangible evidence of the of the preservation of the Word of God tells me, without beyond any shadow of a doubt, what the Scriptures say is true: that the Scriptures are inspired by God. And of course, Peter in that famous. Uh, uh, text where he says that holy men of God were born along by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the, to me, you put those together and then you see the evidence and it's clear. We have 66 books. There's not any more and there's not any less. If somebody says you should have a debate with Sean Griffin about the Bible canon, I've had a debate with that dude. He is dishonest and he is not a person that I would ever debate or even really have a conversation with again. Um, yeah, n not going to happen. Okay, let's keep going. Joseph writes, uh, I recently viewed a video. Some of the conclusions of the video and highlights were that apostolic secession went through Peter and only the Catholic Church has the authority to give the Eucharist. There's so much packed into this comment already. But let's keep going. Just like Semicha was transmitted from Moses I think smicha is what he... Yeah. Smicha, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, from Moses on, only the apostles and their bishops, etc., transmitted the authority of laying on of hands. And only they can provide the blessing and the and transubstantiation of the bread and wine. 
Would you please address the topic of the validity uh, or invalidity? I don't know if I said that right. From source material in reference to apostolic secession uh, as it relates to the Roman church. Okay, this is a great question. Um, let's start with apostolic secession. This passage, this comes, so for those who don't know, basically, um, and Clement of Rome was the first one to actually talk about apostolic secession um, and teach on it, but um, basically uh, what this says is that Peter was the first quote-unquote pope, even though we don't have the idea of the Roman Catholic pope until the 5th or 6th century, but Peter was the first pope of Rome, and that he had the authority of, basically he was given the keys to the kingdom kind of a thing, and now he has the authority to talk for God, and that he can now pass this authority down to subsequent bishops of Rome and what is now called the pope. For those who don't know who and are not familiar with Catholic tradition and or theology, the uh, pope is simply the bishop of Rome. And so people in the Catholic faith believe that Peter was the first bishop of Rome, making him the first pope, and that every subsequent pope after this actually is, um, is now uh, has his apostolic secession. This, however, is muddled quite a bit, and I will hand this to my dad in a few minutes. I just want to kind of clear up a little bit of this history before we jump into the theological ramifications and or teachings on apostolic secession. First of all, it was not always agreed that uh, that the Pope or the Bishop of Rome had ultimate authority over the church. In fact, this is where we get the filioque uh, controversy, is that the, um, the, the Bishop of Constantinople uh, basically said, no, we don't have to adhere to the Pope in Rome. <clears throat> now there's a, <clears throat> pardon me, there's a lot of teaching that goes along with this to try to figure out why this was, but there was a power struggle. It was not until the Fourth Lateran Council in the 1200s that the, uh, the Pope was given ultimate authority. And so the idea that, uh, that there's this apostolic secession through the Pope Yes, it may have been agreed upon that there was this apostolic secession, secession through the Pope, through the Bishop of Rome. However, um, it's not as clear-cut as people think it is today because you had all of this history leading up to the Fourth Lateran Council that finally made a kind of rogue Pope decide that the Pope had ultimate authority even over, even over councils. And so this has been a real hot spot within theology. Now let's go to the Bible. Um, do you want to talk about John Owen, or you just want to, uh, to exegete the passage yourself? And let's read the passage real quick. The passage that this all comes from is Matthew 16, 16 through 19. I will read it, and then I will pass it to my father. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, the, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And now I will scoop it over to my father. Well, the first thing to note, and I think this is pretty well known by people who have studied this particular passage, um, when he says in verse 18, this is Matthew 16, 18, 
And he says, I also say to you that you are Peter. Now that's the typical word uh, name, but it's, uh, and again, we're going to look, get into a little grammar here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Petros, which mean, which is masculine singular, meaning rock. Right. Okay. Uh, and he says, you are Petros. And upon this, now why doesn't he say Petros? He doesn't. In the Greek, if we believe the scriptures are inspired, and we do, he changed it to Petra. What What is Petra? Petra means, according to uh, the primary lexicon of the uh, Greek uh, uh, apostolic scriptures, it means a bedrock or massive rock formations, okay? And in fact, if we look to see where it's used, if you look at uh, th things like Revelation 6.15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And then in the next verse, and they said, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So basically, uh, it's not just a little, you know, uh, Petro, Petros, even in typical uh, Greek literature of the, of the earliest that we have, Petros would be a field stone. In other words, it's something that it was small enough you could pick up with your hand or that you could move with your foot or something to that effect. So... It, are we to take this as a valuable understanding of the text? Yes, I believe we are. We're, to, we're basically, it, we're to say, he says, Peter, you're easily moved. How do we see that? Well, there's this little girl that asks him, didn't you know, don't you know this, uh, don't you know this Yeshua guy? And he says, no, no, never heard of him. Easily moved. Now, I grant Peter repented and he was forgiven. But then he says, upon this rock, uh, what rock is he talking about? Well, good question. It'd be nice to know exactly where he was standing when he said this. Some think that he was in a place where you could see the, the outcroppings of, um, of, the, of the, the mountain uh, and so forth. But at any rate, I think he's talking about something relating to, therefore, upon this rock, meaning himself, or it could be that upon this rock, meaning all of the apostles. In other words, what they would write about him. I will build my ecclesia. So when he says, I will build my ecclesia, what is that? That is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and used, excuse me, five times in the uh, book of Genesis. And sometimes it says nations and sometimes it says families. Why does it change from nations to families? Because nations and fam what, what a family has is, is a lineage, Okay. What is nation? A nation is a group of people that have various lineages that are put together as a nation. Okay? So basically, when he says, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, overpower it, he's saying it's his work. Yeshua said his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession on behalf of, of those who are his would be that rock upon which the ecclesia that he was to build. And what was that ecclesia? Something brand new? No, it was, as Paul teaches us, it was the remnant of Israel to, into which is engrafted those from the nations who are chosen by God to be part of his family. And so you have the nations and the families put together, and this rock is the foundation. And it's used that way. It's used, the, the, Petra, in the feminine form there, is used that way of a, a whole foundation upon which a building is built. It's not just a little rock. So it's something that can't be moved. 
He said, you're Peter. You're easily moved. But upon this foundation, all that God, God would accomplish through his son, Yeshua, our Savior, and those that he would choose as apostles and teach them his message, and they would write it according to the uh, superintending of the Spirit of God, and it would become the apostolic scriptures, which would give all of the uh, aspects of this uh, increased building of his ecclesia in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Yeah, uh, John Owen, in his the very first words and chapter of his, uh, of his books, uh, he talks about this, and I have been fully convinced by uh, Owen's argument. He says that the first phrase that, Pi- that Peter makes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is, is the clause that, that Yeshua now takes and says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, not upon Peter, because, right. and, and uh, Owen argues, we see just a couple verses later, Yeshua says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> for you are a hindrance. And so therefore, the church cannot be built upon Peter. It has to be built upon this phrase, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and I think that Owen makes a great, uh, great argument for this. In the chat room, we have a lot of, uh, go yeah, ahead. There's one more thing. Um, I, I hope everybody realizes that the Roman Catholic Church and their understanding of Eucharist is something that is absolutely contrary to the Scriptures. That's actually where we're going right now. So the other part of this conversation, or this question was, uh, Apostolic Succession went through Peter and the and only the Catholic Church has the authority to give the Eucharist. In the chat room, we have Gary, who, uh, another student at Torah Resource Institute, uh, asks, what did the Passover, when did the Passover meal begin to be referred to as the Eucharist? I know it is referred to as such in the Didache. Actually, this is not true. It is not referred to as such in the Didache. In fact, in the Didache, uh, the, it's possible that the meal might be referred to as the, as the Eucharist. Eucharistos just means Thanksgiving. There's a lot of debate over that. It certainly doesn't seem to be the Passover meal itself. Um, however, uh, Gary is correct that initially in the context of, of, uh, especially, uh, Luke and I would argue first Corinthians, but in the, in Luke 22, when he says this, uh, do this is in remembrance of me, he's certainly in the context of a Passover meal. We see that the, uh, Christian church celebrated the, what they began to call the Eucharist. And why do they say that? Because it says after he had given Eucharistos, that is Thanksgiving, after he had given Thanksgiving, he broke the bread. Um, and so the, the elements of the, um, bread and the wine became known as the Eucharist, but, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist was celebrated as a entire meal by some groups all the way into the fourth century and possibly even beyond. Um, it didn't switch to the elements of bread and wine until, um, until around that time, uh, officially. What's also interesting is that uh, the, uh, <laughs> we talked about, I mentioned the Fourth Lateran Council. It's not until the Fourth Lateran Council in the, 12th, in the 1200s that the Catholic Church officially says that uh, the Eucharist, that is the bread and the wine, becomes transubstantiated. In other words, that the bo- blood and body of Christ is in the, the, uh, the communion or the elements of the Eucharist. I think my father's right. The Eucharist and or the Lord's table as even evangelical Christianity today celebrates it, I do not believe is biblical, it, which I know is, uh, every time we bring this up and every time that uh, Rob and I talk about this, 
we get all sorts of, of uh, emails and comments and people really don't like our stance on this. I believe that when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he's talking about the Passover meal. And so if a evangelical asks me, do you celebrate the, the Lord's Supper? I always say, yes, I do. We do it once a year. And the answer that I'm giving is, yes, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a meal on Nisan 14 every single year entering into the Passover. I don't believe that uh, the bread and the wine, and I've argued this in uh, my thesis, but I don't believe that the bread and the wine are uh, are brought out elements. I believe that the bread and the wine mark the beginning and the end of and the ceremonial part of the Passover meal. I think that that's what it marks, and so it's like bookends. And Yeshua is saying, "This, all of this, do it in remembrance of me." Right. Thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, I, I I fully agree. In other words, uh, what became the so-called Lord's Table, uh, which is, and I'm not saying that people are in any way wrong in having a meal, you know, every Sunday or once a month on Sunday or something like that, where they're trying to remember Yeshua and so forth. They want to do that, that's fine. But that's not what Yeshua is talking about when you say, do this in remembrance of me. The, the Moedim, the festivals which God has uh, set forth in the Torah, when we're to do it and how we're to do it, in, in not in all of the traditions, but basically what we're to do, for instance, at Pesach, we're to put away leaven and so forth and so on. But uh, these are all appointed times. What are they for? Why did he give us the Moedim? He gave us the Moedim so that we would remember we're to remember our coming out of Egypt. And what does the coming out of Egypt, the Exodus, what does it become in the Scriptures? It becomes a motif for salvation. In the same way that the apostles can talk about that we we were slaves to sin, but now we've, been, uh, we've come into the family of Yeshua, and we're free. Free from what? The penalty of sin. Free from the damnation of sin, and we're now liberated— Exo- we, we, we've had a spiritual exodus in order to be able to serve him. So when you celebrate the Passover, Yeshua is saying, I think in this text, in, in these texts, uh, what he's saying is, sure, it's a remembrance of uh, Israel coming out of Egypt, but its ultimate meaning is that you have left the domain of darkness, right, and you've entered in to the kingdom of his dear son. Yeah. It is that same Exodus motif, and he says, do this in remembering me. Remember you came out of Egypt, but ultimately, remember that your salvation ultimately is in the work and in the person of Yeshua. It's interesting, too, a lot of people don't realize this, but in Exodus 12, I believe it is, it says this will be a continual remembrance yes. of your coming out of Egypt. It's the same Greek word that Yeshua yeah. uses when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's he's recalling back to Exodus 12 and the and the celebration of the Passover. Um, the other thing that I would like to say is that, I, as my father said, I don't find anything necessarily wrong. I mean, certainly I would agree with the Reformers, uh, Luther and others who said that the uh, Catholic Mass is a uh, an idolatrous practice, and I believe that for specific reasons. With that said, I have taken communion recently with evangelical brothers and sisters. I do not think that there's anything wrong with taking bread and juice and remembering, uh, you know, the blood and the and the body of Christ, and also remembering the Passover and the time 
I think that that can be done anytime. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's commanded in the Bible. And I don't, but if Christian churches want to do that, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, we get a little dicey depending on what denomination we're in, right? If you go to a Lutheran church, you're in Catholic light. If you go to a Episcopal church, you're in Catholic, essentially. You know, you're one step away from Catholic. Um, and now the question becomes, are they celebrating a mass? And is it the same kind of idolatry that goes on within the Catholic church? Um, all of these things would need to be debated and talked about and worked out individually. However, when we look at evangelical churches, um, Presbyterian churches and so on, and the taking of bread and wine, I understand that there is some controversy over the idea of what they think is going on. However, most evangelicals do not believe in transubstantiation in any way, shape, or form. They believe in a spiritual presence of Christ, not a physical presence. Yeah, um, and I think we ought to try to develop within our own heart and mind a a sense of, I, I don't want to use too uh, powerful of a word, but a kind of <clears throat> sorrow that our brothers and sisters in the Lord miss out because they're not they're not regularly taking uh, celebrating Pesach. Passover. They're not re regularly celebrating the Moedim. They're missing out of a wonderful aspect of what it means to walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. And so instead of uh, trying to tell them how terrible their, you know, their monthly or weekly communion service is, uh, I think we ought to feel sorrow for them and see if we can't help them see the, the value of the uh, Passover uh, uh, time. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let's see here. I, I don't want to go too far over time. I know that you got, uh, so for those who don't know on Wednesdays, my father actually, um, presents a free Bible study on, uh, online for anyone who wants to join right now. He's going through the final, is it the final chapter you're in of James? Still in chapter four, yeah. chapter four of James. So he's got a couple left, but he's in chapter four of James. Uh, that's every single Wednesday night at seven o'clock. Uh, Pacific time. You can join live. Uh, you have to sign up to do that. However, you can also find the archive page of past teachings on the book of James from my father on TorahResource.com. Hover over resources and go down to weekly Bible study. And if you go to that weekly Bible study page, you can find his audio and his written notes on the book of James, which are presented every single Wednesday night. You can catch up. And yeah, then, the, the only thing is we'll probably take the Wednesday off during Sukkot. So, okay. Other than that, it's every Wednesday night. Yeah. yeah so take, so, uh, and then also there's a break uh, for the uh, weekly Bible study during um, class breaks at Torah Resource Institute. You can also sign up for classes and take classes from my father at Torah Resource Institute. Um, is there a link? Hey, uh, Michael, if you're still listening, can you please put a link into the weekly Bible study? Um, and uh, yeah, you, there is a link. Hang on. If, if I don't see Michael put one in in the next few seconds, I'll put one in before we uh, end the stream. Also, you can sign up for classes uh, and take classes from my father. I'm not exactly sure what's going to be offered in the uh, in the winter quarter. I know that Introduction to Christology is offered. I believe you have another one um, in terms of theology, and then of course continued language classes as well. Um, is there a link? Never mind. Okay, um, and uh, yeah. Besides that, I think that uh, Rob should be back. He's taking some uh, much-needed vacation time, him and his wife. And uh, so I believe he will be back next week. I want to thank my father, Tim Hag, president and CEO of Torah Resource, for coming on the show and filling uh, Rob's shoes. 
Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. There's the link in the uh, chat room for anybody who wants it. Um, and then also, uh, I would encourage you, if you aren't going to uh, sign up for classes, my father has written a huge amount of books, articles, and uh, has teachings on TorahResource.com. You can find commentaries on many of the apostolic books. You can find a five-volume set on the Torah. You can find uh, teachings on everything from prophecy and the book of Daniel um, to things like what we've been talking about, uh, introduction to Christology, soteriology. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on, and I would encourage you to jump on to Torah Resource. Go into the store and start browsing. I would say that 80% of the things in our store are written and or taught by my father, and so uh, you can always find them there. For now, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, you know, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.